In our culture, we try and sanitize death. We try and make death a pleasant thing. Now think about that. We dress the deceased up. We pick it out an appealing casket. We spend a lot of money sometimes on those. We cover everything with beautiful flowers, and we talk about a celebration of life, and we try and dress death up. Well, the truth is, if we would be honest, death is ugly. Death hurts. Death is not attractive in any way, and however we try and frame it, it does not look good. The reality is death is our enemy. When we see death, we know that it's not right. And the true reality is death is ugly. Well, I'm afraid in our culture, we've done the same thing with the cross of Calvary. In the same way, we try and dress it up. We try and reframe it. And we try to somehow make it look more appealing. Well, the reality is the cross is also ugly. In fact, it is grotesque. The cross is a memorial of sin. It is a reminder of the sinister evilness of men. As it stands, it is a symbol of brutality. It is a symbol of torture. The cross is ugly, and it should be. And yet the irony is, on this ugly, cruel cross, the most beautiful act of love is played out. On this despicable, ugly cross, God's grace and God's mercy are shown to us as sinners. And the irony is the marvel of all marvels comes out of an ugly cross. Tonight our message is entitled, A Cross Fit for a King. A cross fit for a king. Tonight we're in John chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. John chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. A cross fit for a king. I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 16, God's word says this. So he then handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come tonight, we're thankful, so thankful tonight to come in hope, to come in peace, to come in joy. None of it secured in ourselves, but all of it secured 
in our Savior, Jesus. Lord, I'm thankful for the forgiveness of sin tonight. I'm thankful for, again, our redemption, not of any work that we ever did, but in you and your finished work. Lord, I come tonight and I exalt the name of Jesus. I lift up the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray as we look at these verses tonight, I pray that you would speak. I pray that it would be your message for your church. And I pray that we will be greatly impacted tonight as we hear the voice of our God through your word. Lord, I I pray that the church would be encouraged, strengthened. I pray, Lord, that those that do not know you that will hear in this room and in many other rooms as well tonight, I pray the Lord in the hearing of a risen Savior, of 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 a Savior that loves so much that he sacrifices himself for sinners, that in the hearing of that good news, that tonight might be the night of their salvation. Lord, we give you this evening. We pray, Lord, that you're blessed in it, that you're known through it, and that you're glorified above all. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight on this 89th night, we conclude the trial of our Lord Jesus, and in doing so, we enter into the punishment phase of our proceedings. In these verses tonight, we're going to examine the most pivotal, the most important event in human history, the sacrificial death of Jesus for sinners. All through this account, in fact, all through our gospel we should think of the word irony. As we go through our account tonight, we should think of irony. As we look at our gospel, as we survey our gospel, we should think of irony. Nothing is more ironic than a mishandling of justice resulting in the carrying out of God's perfect justice and God's carrying out of perfect justice resulting in our pardon for sin. Understand, in this transaction, the guiltless is declared guilty. Then he assumes our guilt that the guilty would assume his righteousness and would become in him guiltless. Yes, tonight, remember the word irony. Tonight, let's go again very quickly to our record beginning tonight in verse 16. So then, so he then handed him over to them to be crucified. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate has repeatedly declared Jesus' innocence. He has publicly said on more than one occasion, I find no guilt in him. I find no fault in him. The Bible says he has repeatedly sought to set Jesus free. And so he's made it clear. He finds no guilt in him. Nothing Jesus has done, be sure of this, has warranted death. Pilate makes that clear to us. Yet, the Jews have now accused Pilate of disloyalty to Jesus. Remember, the the case was focused on Jesus, but the Jews have turned it, and they've now put the focus on Pilate. They have said he is not loyal to Caesar. Well, in response, Pilate has now conceded. Justice has been surrendered. The truth has been ignored. And this false proceeding now moves to its end. 
The verse says, so he then handed him, Jesus, over to them. This is talking about the Roman soldiers, talking about the Roman executioners. Pilate has handed Jesus over to them. The Bible says now to be crucified. In verse 16, the punishment stage begins. The case of Jesus the Nazarene is closed. His crime is treason. He claimed to be a king, and his sentence will be death by crucifixion. It is now settled. It is now set, and it now moves forward. Moving to verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. I'm going to read that verse again. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. The Roman soldiers took Jesus. He was handed over to them. They took him, and the Bible says, and he went out. Well, understand the other gospels report that he went through the city, that he went through the city streets. He went outside of the gate, outside of the city. Literally, he went out. Now, I want to point out, it is an interesting fact here. In the Old Testament, the sin offering, the the offering that would carry the sin of the people was also taken outside of the city. Well, Jesus literally goes out. He goes out of the city. The Bible says here Jesus was carrying his own cross. It says in the literal language, himself carrying his own cross. Now, the Roman punishment included the condemned person carrying their own crossbeam, not the entire cross, but the crossbeam of the cross. Understand, crucifixion was to be visible. Crucifixion was to be a deterrent to other people. And so the beaten sentence party would pass through the streets, would weave their way through the streets on their way to their own death, carrying their instrument of death. It was to be shocking to those who saw it. It was to be shameful to those who carried it. On this day, the day before the Passover, The streets were especially full. And so understand, Jesus would pass by a multitude on his way. It wasn't a day without notice. He would pass by curious onlookers who had stepped out to see him as he went by. He would pass by those that would jeer and those that would laugh and those that would mock him as he went by. He would pass by kids that were looking in curiosity at the gruesome scene. In the Gospel of Luke, it says, as he walked, the women were following behind him, weeping and crying. We know from the Gospel accounts also that Jesus' strength fell short. Also in Luke, it tells us that Simon the Cyrene was forced to carry the cross the rest of the way. Jesus fell short in his strength. Simon is pushed into action. He carries the cross the rest of the way. Now, I want want you to see this. That was not an act of compassion. That was common to prevent the person being crucified from dying before he could be nailed to the cross. 
They had already been whipped. They had already been tortured. They had already been beaten. And if they were to die carrying the cross, then they would miss the agony of the cross. And so it was not in sympathy that Simon carries the cross, but it was to prolong the agony for Jesus. The Bible says they went to a place called the skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha. In Latin, Calvary. Our church bears the reminder of this hill in our name. Verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, on one on either side, and Jesus in between. Now the other gospel accounts report that the two other men were guilty of their crimes. They were robbers, they were thieves. On this hill, on the day of preparation, there are going to be three crosses. Jesus occupies the middle cross, the center cross, and these two thieves, the other two crosses. In verse 18, there are the most understated words in our Bible, I believe. In verse 18, I believe there are the most unassuming words in Scripture, I believe. In verse 18, John records of his friend, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. Understand tonight, once at the site of the execution, the accused would place down their crossbeam. They would then be laid across that beam and their hands just below their wrists could be tied to the beam or they could be nailed to the beam. Jesus' hands were nailed. A spike was driven through his wrists into the beam. That was meant to radiate pain throughout the arms, throughout the neck, throughout the shoulders. It was to be unbearable in pain. It was torturous in that after one nail was in place, the other remained to be driven. After he was attached to the cross arm of the cross, it was then lifted into place. It was dropped into a groove on the main post. At that point, the person's legs could be tied to the main post or they could be nailed. Jesus's were nailed. Tradition shows one spike driven through both of his leg bones with the feet being crossed. That is our tradition. Most likely, however, the legs were spread onto each side of the main beam, twisted outwardly, fully exposing the nakedness of the condemned party and putting their hips in a painful bind. Again, there was one nail for each leg, not one nail for both legs. There was one nail for each leg. And again, the torture was after one was driven, the other awaited the same. After the person was secured to the cross, they would fall forward. The weight of their torso would press them forward, pulling against their nails. In this position, they would then begin the process of awaiting their death. I was reading recently a team of German researchers in the 1960s asked for volunteers 
to be tied to crosses that they might measure the effect. They wanted to know what the process was. And so they asked for volunteers to be tied to crosses that they might measure the impact. The results were within six minutes, most of those that were tied to the cross were having extreme trouble breathing. All of their blood pressures had doubled in six minutes. At 30 minutes, all had to be cut down because of terrible pain. For Jesus, there was no such mercy. No, the Bible says there they crucified him. Verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now it's strange here, but Pilate himself writes the inscription. In the Greek, in the original language, the word for inscription means title. It's the title plate. And so Pilate writes the title himself. Now, most times, the Romans would put the crimes of the executed person either above them or sometimes on them, hanging it off of them. Well, in this case, understand, it is the crime, and ironically, it is also his title. See that. Pilate writes, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Remember the Jews had forced Pilate's hand saying he claims to be a king. What, what crime has he done? He claims to be a king. He exists in opposition to Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate writes, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Verse 20. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Now, most of the time, as a deterrent, the Romans would pick their execution site on one of the busiest roads into the city. This was no different. And so here on this busy road, Jesus is crucified. And on this busy road, Pilate writes this description. Now, he writes it in Hebrew, which was the language of the Jews. It was the language of the region, the language of the city. He writes it in Latin, the official language of the government and the army. And he writes it in Greek, the universal language of their commerce. And so for all people to see, because it's on this busy road, written in these three languages, it says, and many are seeing it. Many were seeing it. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Understand tonight, the chief priests hate this. It was Pilate's way of mocking them. They knew, he knew the trumped up charges. They knew, he knew that it was all a lie, that it was false at every turn. And this was a reminder. When they see this, they know that's not the charge. They know that wasn't deserving of death. It was a reminder of the falsehood of it all. But more than that, they hate Jesus being called 
being titled their king. He wasn't their king. They said they only had one king, and it was Caesar. They hate Jesus being called their king. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. In verse 22, the title stands, the occupant of this cross is clearly identified, and in the angry whim of a pride-filled governor, Jesus is forever identified. This is Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Oh, friend, the irony of these verses. Understand tonight, here hangs Jesus, accused by the Jews who should have embraced him, sentenced by the governor who found no guilt in him, crucified by the Romans who should have released him, dying for those who would sneer and mock him, and all of this to offer life to those who if they would only trust in him. Here hangs Jesus on a cross fit for a king. Here hangs Jesus, a king fit on a cross. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come tonight and we pass through these words, these words that are sacred because they tell us of your great sacrifice, of your great love, of the suffering that you endured for sinners like us, for sinners like myself, the grace and the mercy that will be secured in this event. But, but right now we see the pain and the agony, the suffering again of our Savior, Jesus. Lord, I pray that this would take hold in us. I pray that it would be a reminder to us. I pray that it would be held in our vision tonight, that we would see so great a sacrifice motivated, motivated by so great a love. Lord, I'm thankful for you. I praise you tonight. I thank you tonight. We worship you tonight. The Savior, the King, fit for a cross. Lord, I pray as we've gone through these verses tonight, again, I pray that it's, it's born, it's impacting our lives, but also pray for some that are in their sin tonight, some that have never turned to you in faith tonight. As they, as they stand under the, the weight and the heaviness of their sin, I pray that in seeing this picture, they would see the Savior that loved them and paid for their sin in this very event. Lord, I pray again that you would move, that you would work, that you'd be known, that you'd be glorified in this. We trust it to you. Again, we lift up the name of our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. We're gonna close tonight with a time of response, a time of invitation. And I wanna tell you that the call tonight is this, very simple, trust Jesus. This is our Savior. This is the remedy for our sin. This is the hope that we have, the only hope that we have as sinners. The call tonight is this, trust Jesus. The Bible says we're all sinners. Each of us have sinned. The Bible says in our sin, we've earned a punishment, death. If we die in that state, the book of Revelation calls it the second death, separation from God for all eternity. The good news is we have a gracious God. We have a loving God. He sends his only begotten son, Jesus. He comes and he dies our death, paying our penalty, settling it here on this cross. You put him in a grave, he's dead. Three days later, he walks out. The good news of the gospel is he doesn't stay dead. 
He stands as the risen king, our savior, our hope. The Bible says if you will profess faith in him, if you'll trust him for your salvation, you shall be saved. Professing with our mouth what we believe in our heart, you shall be saved. Tonight, I want to encourage you, trust Jesus. Turn to Jesus this night. This is our Savior. This is our King. This is our Lord. Maybe you're here and you've trusted Christ, but you've never followed in believer's baptism. I want to give you an opportunity tonight as well to come and say, I want that testimony to stand for me. And so in a few moments, you come as well. We'll set a date. It'll be a great day of celebration. Maybe you're looking for a church home, and if you've prayed about it and you believe God has led you here, you come as well. Together we'll serve his name, upholding his word for his glory. Maybe tonight you want to come and pray at an altar. Maybe you want to come pray with me. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too small. I'm going to ask that no one would stir about, head for an exit, but you would pray for those that are making decisions. As we stand and sing, if God has spoken to you, you step out. You come on, I'll meet you here.